is the Bad Bridget podcast with Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormack, the podcast that goes behind the traditional emigrant success story to tell the hidden tales of women that history has chosen to forget. It shines a light on stories of crime and poverty, but also of survival, resistance and coping against the odds. These are the stories that help us understand the complex experience of migration, both in the past and today. So in this episode, we're looking at Irish women in the sex industry. And we're beginning with my favourite bad, Bridget, whose story is going to be told to us by the fabulous Siobhan McSweeney. On a warm summer's night in July 1891, 19-year-old Marion Canning enjoyed supper on the Manhattan Street with a male friend. Marion walked home along to Mulberry Street in New York, where she had lived since her move from rural County Leitrim a couple of years before. She encountered a man called Richard Bronkbank, who said, Hello, sis, and asked her, Do you want to go on a night's racket? Marion said she didn't care. In Marion's own words, she had lived a life of shame since the 9th of last January, meaning she had worked for six months in the sex industry. Bronkbank told her how he'd just landed in New York. He'd been paid off a steamer that had now finished its journey. And while he hadn't got any dollars on him, he was going to be paid $27 the next day and he would give her $5 in return for her services and his watch as a keepsake. Marion thought he was joking and insisted, ain't you going to pay? He didn't answer and kept walking with her. When they got to her house, He asked for his $5 note and watch back. Marion would later claim that he had never actually given her these items and she asserted, if you accuse me, please get an officer and have him arrest me. So Richard Bronkbank went to the corner of the street, met a policeman and accused Marion of stealing from him. She was taken to the station house and searched, but no money was found on her. At the station, Bronkbank couldn't even positively identify her, and yet Marion was arrested and sent to trial for theft. She had no lawyer and instead defended herself. She was found guilty and sentenced to seven years in jail. So seven years for stealing when there's no evidence she'd actually committed the crime or that a crime had even been committed. It, that seems just really severe. I mean, it was. And, and definitely the fact that she was admitting to be a sex worker and was also a recent Irish immigrant undoubtedly went against her in court. And her story just wasn't believed. And on top of that, the policeman who had actually arrested Marion was on holiday when the trial took place and his testimony wasn't even heard. So it definitely wasn't a fair trial by any stretch of the imagination, but her story doesn't end there, sure it doesn't? No, it certainly doesn't. And we'll hear the rest at the end of the podcast. But um, her story isn't uncommon. Um, it, It wasn't unheard of for sex workers to have been unfairly treated or falsely accused. And we often find out about women working as prostitutes, not for crimes relating to that work, 
But when they're accused of crimes like theft, um, sometimes like Marion, they might be false accusations. In other cases, theft from a client was really common. Yeah, exactly. So we have one woman in Toronto. So she's prosecuted several times for stealing watches from clients. Now she's called Marianne Murphy. And she came before the courts in Toronto in October 1872, accused of stealing $80 um, and a silver watch from a John Lithgow. Now, he had met um, Marianne and her female companion on a street corner, and he had negotiated a dollar um, for Marianne's services. So, so they went to a house where they had sex, presumably. Um, and afterwards, he realised that his money um, and his watch um, were gone. Now, the women ran away. So John found a policeman. Um, and Marianne and her accomplice were, were very quickly um, arrested. So they're clearly well known to the police then. Yeah, exactly. So, so, but actually in this case, they are, they're found not guilty um, in court, but the court file, their record, describes them as bad characters who were frequently committed um, for stealing and for drunkenness. And this wasn't Marianne's first offence either, nor her last, was it? No, no. Um, so she was accused of robbing um, two different men in October and November 1870. Um, and in January 1873, she, she's in court again. So she's a, accused of stealing yet another watch um, from yet another man she'd gone down a lane to have sex with. Um, and for this crime, she spent um, six months in prison. But she clearly... You know, these prison stays um, clearly had no um, effect on her whatsoever because she didn't change her ways. And in 1876, she's again accused um, of stealing a watch from another man. And I suppose as well, there's the assumption that it's a risk worth taking because the man involved might not want to make a complaint and have everyone know he was with a prostitute. So the woman could actually get away with the crime. And and the fact as well, though, that Marianne and other women were stealing from clients does tell us that sex work was not a well-paid business for most women. Yeah, exactly. So so obviously um, there would have been uh, high class um, sex workers there. They may have catered for wealthier clients. And um, we don't know a huge amount about them because they don't necessarily come to the attention of the authorities um, all that often. So it's women like Marianne who we actually hear um, more about or most about when they come before the courts. And this wasn't the end of Marianne's story. No, it wasn't. And um, so we see her again in front of the courts for assault charges, um, regularly for drunkenness and vagrancy between 1879 um, and 1883. Now, she's usually, usually when she's there, she's been fined a dollar or maybe um, 10 days in prison for those kind of offences. And vagrancy means essentially being on the streets with no means of support. So it's very likely that Marianne was homeless at this point. And you see vagrancy often used to prosecute sex workers and it's often associated with drunkenness. These are women who are drunk, who are on the streets, who have yeah. nowhere to go and they're a visible nuisance. Yeah, absolutely. So then do you think that we could say, if if you had to say one way or the other, do you think that we could say that it was very common for Irish women to be involved in sex work in North America? Well, it, it did used to be thought that Irish women who emigrated didn't engage in sex work. And the argument being they didn't engage in sex work in Ireland. They were very moral in their behaviour there. And then the same thing when they, they emigrated. But we now know that that's not the case. Research over the past few decades, pioneered by Maria Luddy, for example, 
shows that prostitution was common in Ireland, as it was elsewhere. And this was, of course, no different for Irish women who emigrated as well. I suppose so. It is hard to get a definitive number um, of women who were involved in sex work in the past, because for some, it's a temporary occupation. So we only really, you know, some women are kind of going in and out um, of sex work when they need it. And we usually only find out about the women who came to the the attention of the authorities. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we do have some statistics and some numbers from the from the period. Um, for example, William Sanger, who published a, a big study of prostitution in 1858, he claimed that of the foreign born prostitutes who he interviewed for his study in New York, 57% were Irish. And a number of other historians have argued that Irish women did dominate prostitution related offences in North American cities from the mid to the late 19th century. So I suppose if we're we're thinking about reasons and um, that could lead women into sex work. So so in many ways these are similar to today. Um but in the past, so for some women, it would have been an act of choice. Um, for other women, of course, it would have been financial issues and um, also maybe loss of support networks. Um, for others, we've seen in, in our research that, that it's the flexibility that sex work offers. It allows them um, to provide for their children, to work irregular hours at, or if that's what they need to do or to work what hour, what hours as and when they need to. Um, and I suppose addiction issues too, um, are, are probably playing, um, quite a large role. Definitely they are. And, you know, for many Irish women at, at the time, it, it was a survival strategy. It's about keeping families and children. Um, and also it's about having to send money home, um, something which we talked about um, in the last podcast, how it was really expected, particularly of Irish women who had emigrated, to send money in, in remittances back home. And, and women sent back millions to Ireland. Um, the historian Maureen Fitzgerald says that it's very likely that uh, at least a large portion of this was funded through sex work. So there's there could be considerable pressure on women to be earning. We know that. And and I think one of the big areas um, of employment for Irish women, maybe even the, the kind of stereotypical um, idea that we might have is is women, Irish women as domestic servants. Um, but I suppose this could be precarious employment. And one of the big concerns um, that we see associated with young women emigrating or girls emigrating is that they're they're vulnerable to being abused. And I suppose, you know, work by Sarah Deutsch and, and others have shown this, you know, that domestic servants could be exploited um, by their employers. They could be um, sexually assaulted as well. So maybe this is a good time to tell this, the story of Maud Merrill, who's one of your favourites. She is, uh, yeah. Maud Bridget Sillian. Um, and this is a really tragic story, though, but it does give us a real insight into these problems and difficulties that young women could face and the life choices that some of them made. Yeah, I just find the story so fascinating. Um, Maud was born in Cork. She emigrated to New York in 1870 when she was about 18. So we get some good background detail on her as well, which we don't have 
for some of our, our bad bridges, sometimes they can be hard to find. So she emigrates when she's about 18 and she goes over to join her younger sister, Lottie. And Lottie had emigrated the year before. So they're both funded to emigrate by their uncle, Robert. He was already in New York and had kind of um, established himself there for several years. And that would have been fairly common, really, for other family members to help pay for emigration. Maybe one member mm. going out at a time and, and sisters going out one after the other as well was quite common too. And that's, this is something which Maureen Murphy refers to as the, the Fanula factor, the idea of, of one sister going out and then another sister coming afterwards. Yeah. And Lottie, so she's already in New York. She got Maud a job. So it's exactly that is kind of helping to set her up. She got Maud a job as a servant. Um, and Maud had a few jobs over the next few months. Um, and she went to work. Uh, one of them was with a church minister, a Reverend Williams. And on one evening, Maud's uncle Robert called to Reverend Williams' house and, and and Reverend Williams later says that um, Uncle Robert was a bit drunk at the time. Um, and he and Uncle Robert said to, to Reverend Williams that Maud had told him that Reverend Williams had taken improper liberties with her. So that's the, the 19th century language. And Williams denied this. He said this was clearly an attempt to blackmail him. So he refused to pay any money. Um, and unsurprisingly, Maud lost her job. So, so Maud is sacked. Um, but she's able to get another job with a Mrs. Hall. So this really shows us that Irish women are in demand um, and things kind of, she can easily get that job, but but things start to go wrong when Uncle Robert makes um, another appearance. And, and this time he he calls to, to Mrs. Hall's house and he slaps Maud and he calls her a damned whore. Um, and he said to Mrs. Hall, if she knew um, that, that Maud was an improper character, so basically he comes, assaults her essentially and makes yeah. accusations about her behaviour and it's not hard <laughs> know. to know what happens next in this story. Yeah, so unsurprisingly, poor Maud loses yet another job and yet again, all thanks to her uncle Robert. But it, it just shows as well the fact that she is sacked there, that this idea of respectability is so important that yeah. an employer wouldn't keep on somebody who they mm -hmm. even suspect was accused of, of not maintaining good moral standards. Yeah, and later Mrs Hall, she does recall how Maud tried to explain the situation to her, explain what Ro Uncle Robert meant. But Mrs Hall just wouldn't listen and she admits that herself. And it's this sacking, which seems to have been the point at which Maud entered the sex industry. So we know that Maud went to live in a few brothels. We know that Lottie, her sister, tried to persuade her to leave those brothels. And Maud, you know, she, she promised she would, but she did say maybe after Christmas. So, so we have this, um, so that really gives us a bit of an insight into the, the finances, right? So, so yes, but after Christmas, because I need to be earning enough money up to that point. Um, and we have also a description of where Maud lived. And I think maybe this explains partly why she wasn't um, quite so keen to go back to being a servant. So it was gorgeously furnished with velvet carpeted floors and an abundance of original paintings on the wall. Maud had what was described as a large and richly appointed chamber. A thick, soft carpet covered the floor, costly lace curtains, a damask, a damask labyrinth shaded the windows. A lofty pier glass surmounted by broad gold washed cornices occupied one end of the house and was reflected at the other end by an immense mirror set in the door of a rosewood wardrobe. On one side of the room was a high carved bedstead. Wow. I don't even know what some of those things are, but they sound fabulous. So she's clearly doing really well. Um, she definitely has a lovely place to live and mm -hmm. that's it's going to be a lot nicer than where she was living as a servant. Yeah, we can imagine. You know, and we know that often women were 
weren't able to easily leave brothels. They were held there maybe by debt or by force. But it clearly seems to be that Maud's remaining where she is out of choice. Yeah, absolutely. But unfortunately for Maud, this choice actually ended in tragedy. So her uncle Robert appeared on the scene again. Um, and he went to the house where she lived. He went up to Maud's room, so that room that I have just described. And, and the housekeeper then heard strange noises coming from the room. She went to investigate. She met Robert on the stairs. She described him as being totally indifferent. And she asked him what the noise was. And he said, I have just killed my niece and I'm going to give myself up. So he had actually shot Maud three times. And he said that this is to redeem her from her evil ways. So he was found guilty of second degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. It's just a shocking story, really, and how extremely someone would react to the fact that they felt that a family member was bringing disgrace. Uh, and I, it just really does show how respectability was incredibly important for people at this time and that any hint of disgrace could ruin a family and, and in particular, a woman's reputation. Yeah, and of course, men weren't affected <laughs> the same way. It was only women under this kind of scrutiny. They were the ones that needed to be rehomed. They are the ones who need to be reformed. Um, if it was thought that they had kind of sinned sexually or been sexually immoral. Uh, and when you say reformed, we are talking something like Magdalen Homes, like Magdalen Laundries, which often we associate as, as just being in Ireland. Yeah. Um, yeah, so so they are similar to the ones in Ireland. And you have, have done so much research on this, this Leanne. And, and most American cities, they would have had some kind of Magdalene home or some kind of an asylum or what was known as like a moral reform society that had maybe accommodation attached. Some would have been run by Catholic nuns, others run by middle class uh, Protestant women, phil uh, philanthropists as well. Yeah, and the aim would have been that the idea of taking in women who had fallen, which which meant fallen into sexual sin. So they might have been prostitutes or they might have been in prison or they'd become pregnant outside of marriage. But the idea being that you would spend some time in one of these homes and that would would help reform you um, and turn you away from your, your sinful ways. Yeah, and these were kind of, there were these attempts to reform women thought to have sinned, but there was also this kind of concern. So, so we have this it's kind of double-edged here, isn't it? It's like there's this concern about the vulnerability um, of women as well. And and in, in the context we're talking about, there's this real concern about the vulnerability of young Irish immigrant women. This idea that maybe they're being led astray, led away into a life of sin. Um, and, and so kind of prevalent were some of these arguments that a specific home was actually established in New York to try to prevent them being led astray. Yeah, there was. And Dr. Jennifer Redmond can tell us a bit more about this um, home and, and the work surrounding it. Um, Jennifer's a lecturer in Maynooth University um, and she works on women and migration and has a new project which looks at a middle class philanthropist called Charlotte Grace O'Brien who sought to help poor Irish girls in New York. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for, for speaking to us. And um, Can you just begin by telling us um, a bit about Charlotte Grace O'Brien? Charlotte Grace was um, a well-known writer by the time she became interested in this issue of emigrant philanthropy, particularly for Irish girls. She'd read a book called The Irish in America by John Francis Maguire, who was a nationalist MP, and it would he would have been familiar to her from her political circle to do with her family. And she was quite inspired by the idea of migration, but quite worried by the experiences of young women. 
And she seems to have thought really very deeply about this from every step of their journey, from how they might have experienced um, a third class carriage ride to the port. And she took one herself to find out. And of course, it wasn't very comfortable. And then she realised that at the port, which at that time was Queenstown or Cove, um, you really could be fleeced uh, in terms of money for how much it might uh, cost you to stay over if your ship wasn't ready to go. Um, And then also there wasn't necessarily a very safe place for you to go. Um, And then, of course, the conditions on the ships. So she, she directed her energies in a number of ways. She started a boarding house which for someone of her class is is quite unusual. And she really is quite an unusual woman in very many ways. And then she went to inspect the conditions on the ships and what she found displeased and horrified her. Um, She found that there was this kind of casual mixing of the sexes, which is kind of her type of language about it, and uh, really thought that there wasn't enough protection for young women. They were sleeping too close to men and they were sleeping too close to married couples. And by that, I think she was also worried about married men. And if they needed to use um, the facilities, uh, wash themselves, go to the bathroom, there there wasn't enough separation of space. And I'm not sure if she heard any particularly horrific stories or just it was her own sense of concern or imagination. Unfortunately, that's not really spelled out. We don't have her letters or diaries of that point. Um, they seem to have disappeared into the ether, unfortunately. But uh, I do know that she actually engaged heavily in inspection of the ships. So this was her first um, foray into this, trying to improve the conditions. She writes to the Board of Trade. She writes to the shipping companies. And actually, she's successful. Uh, She gets them to upgrade their facilities and uh, create proper sanitation on the ships, separate spaces and also curfews, which is where I sort of um, part ways with her good intentions, because there's still the onus on the women not to get themselves into trouble and how they do that is by not being allowed to be in certain parts of the ships after uh, a certain time at night. And she's really concerned about life for Irish female migrants abroad. And she also is quite a savvy media operator. So the she's being reported on in um, newspapers in Britain, Ireland and America because she goes over, she takes one of these trips herself on the boat uh, and she goes over and she lives in a tenement house with um, Irish people. I'm actually not sure how she arranged that. And I'm not sure what kind of a house guest she would have been um, because she had lots of bad things to say about her environment, although she wasn't particularly uh, mean or negative about her hosts. She said, though, that it was definitely an improvement. But what she was interested in was the whole process. And she became quite well known for these talks she would give about how she'd taken on the shipping companies and won. And then she was uh, approached by the Catholic um, Diocese in New York about uh, her help because because I think she, her name plus the cachet of her um, public status as a writer and then as a campaigner. And she also realised at that point in time, she wasn't Catholic herself, but that most of the emigrants were. And she thought that uh, there should be direct Catholic help in the form of, of um, a priest to minister to people on the ships and then when they arrived. So there's this whole world of emigrant philanthropy right in New York, at the port, at Ellis Island. And um, she gets involved in setting up what's called Watson House or the Mission 
as it's also sometimes known, which is right as as close to you as you can get to the to the sea, um, right down at the port. So uh, presently, if you were taking a trip to uh, Liberty Island, it's about one minute's journey from uh, that uh, port. And uh, it was a, a historic house, uh, apparently built for its bricks for, imported from England. It's on State Street, which was a very fancy um gentry kind of area in the past and it still survives as a, a a beautiful house next to a chapel because it's the birthplace of the first American female saint uh, Elizabeth Seaton. So could you tell us then how how she tries to save these women or or are they really girls? Relatively young women, yeah. So they employed men to go down to the port and kind of keep an eye out and try to find um, unattended Irish girls. So girls who either maybe their relatives didn't turn up to meet them or they didn't have any relatives to meet them. And apparently the, the depictions, I, the picture I get of it is that it was a bit of a scrum down there and there was lots of people and shouting. And the idea was that they could be easily nabbed. And I know from some of your cases that that, that did and could happen. I, my own judgment is it didn't happen as often as perhaps it was feared to be or sensationalized a little bit, but indeed it could be. So they trusted that work to men and they were men, I believe, of the parish and kind of proto-social workers in a way, but also would be burly enough perhaps to fend off any uh, bad characters. So they would go down there, they would identify the women and then uh, they would put them up. Now, I haven't actually been able to see any pictures of the bedrooms. I don't know if they lived in dormitories per se. I'd say they did. Uh, but the house is very, very grand. And from pictures I've seen, I think that they uh, the occupancy did vary. But there could be 30, 50 women, I would say, at any one point on the premises. And they had a, a direct link to employment. So I would say even maybe information filtered back to women in Ireland to say, this place exists and it's a great opportunity. And from what I can see from the records, they published annual reports, which are available in the New York Public Library. Um, They were quite successful in placing these women in respectable employment. I think they always had the aim actually to not necessarily for domestic service, maybe a tier above that. Um, so if you maybe in um, some kind of clerical work or it depends on the literacy, I suppose, of the woman, but something that was morally sound and could uh, be stood over by the parish who were directly involved in the placement of these women. Thanks so much, Jen, for all of that really, really fascinating um, insight into these kind of middle class views or the, the views of this um, middle class woman who actually had had significant impact um, in New York. And I suppose one of the hard things when we're investigating the lives of women in the Bad Bridger Project is that we don't often get to find out what happens to most of the women once they go to prison or, you know, once they kind of leave prison. There's very little correspondence or any kind of personal information relating to our women and what happens to them next. So we want to know what happens next after they leave some of these institutions or leave the, the prison. They often have these really common names and um, that it can be hard to trace them in the records. Age is sometimes a bit fluid. So even if we identify someone by their name, maybe their age doesn't quite match up to what we had. So it can be really difficult to say for absolute certainty that this is the same woman. Um, it is really tricky, but sometimes we do get a glimpse of 
of something more and we do with with back to um, your favorite back to my favorite Marion Canning whose story we began the the podcast with um, and I think this is one of my favorites because we do get to, to know something more about her um something more about her family background and a bit more about she's not it's not just a story of oh this is somebody who was convicted for theft we then find out uh, out more about her and mm. we find some letters from Marion's dad Thomas who was still living in rural Leitrim and these these are letters that he wrote first of all to the judge at Marion's trial and then to the governor of New York asking for for clemency and leniency towards his daughter and these are just absolutely yeah. it's such an amazing find <laughs> and I remember when you found them in the archive that, that kind of excitement of like oh my god is this right because you rarely find this type of correspondence and it's so fascinating to see an Irish father in the 1890s, writing, I suppose, you know, writing to ask what, what any parent would be asking if they had just found out that their, their child has ended up in prison. Just like, please release my daughter. Let her come back home. Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't, I, I remember reading them and thinking, I'm not sure these are, are these real? Is this somebody yeah. really in, really in Ireland writing? Because, um, I mean, they, they are very eloquently written as well. And, and in the first letter, Thomas asks the judge, the judge of, of the trial, he'd obviously found out, um, Marion was, was, um, in court and he was asking to mitigate the sentence on the poor child or release her on condition that I would take her home at once out of the country and maintain herself with her own family here. And he goes on to say, I would either go myself for her or I would send cost of her expense to your honour to provide a passage ticket to Ireland. So he's basically saying to the judge, I'll go and get her. I'll I'll go give her to me. She'll not be a drain on, on your resources. Give her to me. I'll bring her back to Ireland and I'll make sure yeah. that she behaves in future. I know it is that sort of basic parental instinct isn't to say, mm. I'll come, I'll get them, <laughs> I'll bring them home and they'll behave. I'm, I'm really sorry for any trouble they've caused. Um, and, and we don't have the, the letters that, that were written to Thomas, um, from the judge, but it does seem that the judge probably did write at this point and say, actually, look, the sentence has already been passed. This is out of my hands, but write to the state governor. Um, and it's only the governor that can issue a pardon because we do have a letter then about a month later where Thomas does write to the, to the governor asking for clemency. And he, he says to accede to the prayers of the unfortunate child's parents far separated as they are from her and heart-rending as the case is to an Irish parent's heart, grant her release from prison. And and the thing about these is that these letters do clearly have an effect because mm. the district attorney then looks at the case again and talks to the policeman who arrested her. And this is the same policeman, the one you mentioned is on holidays. So, so he puts a new spin on things. Yeah, so it's sort of everything gets turned on its head a bit because this policeman says, you know, Bronkbank, the man who'd accused Marion of theft, he says he was so indecisive that he he wasn't really sure whether to actually arrest Marion mm. or not at the time. And he also explains then that he goes on that he he he, he knows Marion, he knows Marion from the from the area, and he knows that she worked as a prostitute. But he sort of goes on to he says about her that she wasn't of the low character of those who ordinarily frequent that neighbourhood, and that so far as she could enjoy the same following that nefarious calling, her character was good. And he also suggested that she was of respectable parentage and that her course in life was more the fault of others than any evil tendency in the girl's part. 
So he's saying she's not really bad. She's more sinned against than sinning. And as far as, I suppose, as far as he could see, even though she was a sex worker, that she was of good character. Yeah, he, he's sort of in a backhanded way. He's yeah. given her a really kind of uh, good character reference. And and it clearly all works because the good news is, and the sort of, the, and I love a happy ending, is that <laughs> Marion was pardoned on the 9th of February, 1893. Although she did serve 19 months in prison. Yeah, it's a long time. And, and the governor of New York writes to Thomas Canning to tell him about it. So does Thomas go, head over to New York and collect his daughter like you promised? Well, <laughs> I think he was probably regretting the maybe the thought of um, that he promised to kind of come and get her because he writes and says, actually, he has a large family, times are hard, and that he'd, he'd find it hard to actually pay the cost of going to America. But he says, you know, I'll, I'll meet Marion in Liverpool. And, and then he says, she'll never come back to America again. And and we do know that she did return home. She got married. We don't know if her new husband actually knew why she had come back from America or whether he knew what had happened to her over there. I mean, I would guess that they probably didn't tell everyone the details. Um, there may have been a different story about why she suddenly came home that, mm. that she wasn't happy or she'd she'd made enough money or she came she came back because that the sort of thing that she'd been in prison, um, regardless of what it had been for, even if she'd been found innocent and if it had got out that she'd been she'd been working as a as a prostitute, that would be something that could ruin a reputation and would really ruin your chances of getting married. So mm. my feeling was it was probably never mentioned again. But it is really exciting to find a, a story like that, this kind of a happy ending um for someone whose story seemed so bleak at the time yeah. when she was actually convicted. So she's falsely accused, she's convicted with no evidence um, and sentenced to prison for seven years. So it just seemed like a very kind of bleak future ahead. Um, and it's also amazing that this man in rural Ireland would know who to write to and would make such a difference to his daughter's life. I mean, I hope she appreciated it <laughs> because as, you know, for most women in the same situation, there was very rarely someone to come to the rescue. Um, and, and for a lot of women, their gender, their ethnicity, the fact that they were being considered as immoral and sinful would, would really make sure that they were found guilty. Please join us at the end of next week for three more Bad Bridget podcasts. We're looking at Irish women and alcohol, unmarried motherhood, and maybe the most scandalous of all of our podcast themes. Irish women and murder. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please like and subscribe. And if you would like to give us a five star rating, it helps other people find us. This Bad Bridget podcast was funded by Queen's University Belfast and Ulster University. It was written and presented by Elaine Farrell and Leanne McCormick. Edited and produced by Colm Heatley at QUB consultation provided by Alan Hall and with special thanks to Siobhan McSweeney and Jennifer Edmund. Original artwork by Ashley Neal at PhD Cartoon, original music by Francisca Schroeder and Katrina Gribben and additional post-production provided by John Darcy. <laughs>